one. How many of you have found out they're smarter than us? Oh, most of you, some of you. I'm astounded by what my grandkids pick up on so fast. There are things I'm still learning, and I watch them at their age already having mastered it. My oldest grandson, Seth, the daughter of Rachel Jonathan, that was standing here this morning playing, and Rachel, my youngest, adopted him a, a couple of years ago, and Seth is brilliant when it comes to Legos. I gave him stuff, and we gave him stuff at Christmas, and I'm fascinated to watch him literally turn a page, put it together, turn a page, put it together, turn a page, put it together. I'm going, I'm still on page one opening the box. Just give me a moment to catch up. He's already done it. so complicated. It turns, it spins, it shoots, and all this kind of stuff. In usually 20 to 30 minutes, it would have taken me 10 days. Y'all remember putting those model planes together for our kids? It took us a week to 10 days. Came to me a couple of weeks ago, and he said, hey, Pap, I want to download an app on your iPad. I said, you know how to do that? Oh, my goodness, yes. I said, Okay. Um, which one? He said, I want, to unload, I want to download Temple Run. I said, well, but I've got to see it first because there's no way I'm going to download an app that I haven't seen. And so he downloaded it and he played it, mastered it like this. And I, I watched him do it and I was blown away. And so when he left, I thought, well, man, I saw how far he got, how many points he had. <laughs> I'm well ahead of this nine-year-old. I can do this. Now, let me show you what it does real quick. Jace has a 30-second clip. All right, you're running down the path. You've got to stay on the path, collect a reward, make sure you stay on the path, and avoid every single pitfall, jumping or sliding or whatever's necessary to be able to do that. And I watched him do it for uh, 20, 30 minutes, and he just got so much of a high score. I thought, I could do that. I couldn't get past most times the first turn. And he would sit there, thanks Jay, he would sit there for moments on end going down this lawn and I would see hundreds and thousands of points come up and I have 43. <laughs> These kids are brilliant. A couple of days after that, I opened it up again. I made sure all the apps were closed and I thought I'm going to beat this one again and opened it up and watched it and I knew I was in the middle of this Old Testament series. Because I was writing them and putting them together, and I spent a couple of days at home just spending some time with God and the Word and material and some of these characters that I was pulling out and picking out and knowing that we're going to talk about over the next few months. And I thought, as fascinating as it is, that's a pretty good visual of what some of these old character stories are all about. God says, I have a path that I want you to stay on. There are rewards if you do that. Thy word is a lamp into my feet and a what? A light into my path. So I've got a path that I want you to follow and I've got a path that I want you to stay on. And if you stay on that path, there's going to be an amazing thing and some amazing things are going to happen to you along the way. But I'm telling you, there are also some pitfalls that you need to avoid. And when I looked at these characters and some of their stories, none of them are perfect. We're going to see all the ups and downs. Now, if you were writing a story about your family, aren't there some things you'd leave out? And aren't there some people you would leave out, out of your story? If I were to say to you today, hey, let's just go on a journey, not Ancestry.com, but I want to go on a journey with your family. I want you to tell me about all the positives and the negatives about your family. My wife, everybody that's gotten on our staff, here's a story about one of my wife's uncles that you would not absolutely believe. 
It is beyond comprehension. It literally ought to be a movie. And some of you, if you've heard it on staff, you're going, it's in your family? And she tells the story. Now, there are a lot of family stories I'd leave out. And I'm sure you would as well. And I looked at all these stories as I began to read Genesis and Exodus and some of the other ones through that we're going to be talking about over the next few months. And I thought, God, you are fascinating. How you would tell every flaw and every positive characteristic of some of these Old Testament characters. And and I felt almost immediately the Spirit of God saying, that's what I'm trying to tell you about life and why they're in there. There's some great models of godliness. Some people who stayed on the path, and when they did, they saw God do some incredible things in their lives. But I'm going to be really honest with you about some of the pitfalls. I'm going to be honest about what's going to happen if you don't stay on the path and you fall into one of these pits. And the price that you'll pay is incredible. So instead of letting you try to live life on your own and figure out Christianity and try to understand how to follow God, I'm going to give you a guideline. I'm going to give you a guidebook. And I'm going to help you along the way to try to figure out what it's like to stay on the path and some of the things you need to do and some of the rewards of doing that. And I'm going to be really honest about some of the pitfalls to avoid so that you'll know and you'll not make some of the same mistakes. That's why he said, thy word is a lamp into my feet and a guide into my path so that I can follow it, which obviously means I got to be in it. And I know the stories. Can't believe the amount of people that come to our church year after year. I've been here almost 20 years in October, and through the years I've heard the stories, and I would ask them, why us, and what were you looking for? And there'll be some great stories and great reasons, and a lot of it has to do with our children and youth ministries because they're in the process of raising their family, and others love exciting music and energetic music, but most of the time I hear them say, I want to learn the Bible. I don't know it. I have no idea where some of these stories are. I have no idea who these people are. When we did Daniel a few weeks ago, someone came up to me and said I couldn't even find it. I didn't even know who he was. Many of us who've been in a word for a long period of time kind of take that for granted. And there are a lot of people in our audience on a regular basis who are just sucking in the word of God because they want to learn it. They want to grow in it. They want to understand it. And God says, look, I've given you one of the most amazing, if not the best blueprint outside of my son, how to live this life. Abraham is one we dealt with last week. And we're going to deal with some characters that you know, like Kim and this morning lot, maybe a little lesser known. When we shared the story with you last week, God was again honest about some of the issues that he faced. And certainly the danger of going his own way. I mean, he could have sang the song, I did it my way, and doing it his way and Sarah's way cost him a lot. And it cost people for the last 4,000 years a lot. That one decision, as you'll see even this morning about the power of decisions, that one decision had an impact on hundreds of thousands of lives for the last three to 5,000 years. With Ishmael, Hagar's son, being the father of the Arab nation and Isaac being the father of the Jewish nation. 
There was one point, and I won't go into the story this morning, where Abraham had the opportunity to get down to another city or another place, and he wasn't sure how they were going to receive his wife, so he lied about her and said he was my, she was my sister. And, and then finally that story begins to unfold in the Scripture. And what's fascinating, when you continue to read, you'll find that Isaac, Abraham's son, being in a similar situation, said the exact same lie. You don't think our kids watch our lives? Man, they do. I'm going to talk a lot about that this morning. In Genesis chapter 13, we're going to skip in a lot of material as we go through this morning. And certainly over the next number of months as we pick and choose some contemporary lessons from some Old Testament characters. And see the things that I think God wants to teach all of us as we walk through this journey. I'm in Genesis chapter 13 this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 and then look at five mistakes that Lot made. Now, if you're in the middle of making decisions in life, depending on what those decisions are, and talked a lot about good and bad decisions last Sunday morning, there are tons of other scriptures and a ton of other examples that we could use. I want to stay with one character at a time this morning, so I'm going to just use Lot as an example and look at five things. You have your sermon notes, so pull it out of your bulletin so you can follow along with me. Genesis 13, beginning at verse 1. Now, Abram is still called Abram. Later, God's going to change his name to Abraham, the one that we're most familiar with. He went up from Egypt to Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Lot's his nephew. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Now, Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had a lot of flocks and herds and tents. But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together, and their possessions were so great They weren't able to stay together, and some quarreling arose among Abram's herders and Lot's. Any of you ever had family arguments? I mean, your families are perfect, so it's never happened, all right? (laughs) Quarreling arose among Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the same time. So Abram said to Lot, look, let's not have any quarreling between you and I or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. We've got the whole land before you. So let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. I got to stop here for a moment. I had uh, friends of mine, my parents growing up, who were Italian, sent back home for two ladies to be their wives. They were brothers. They're standing at the airport waiting for them to descend, and finally one looked at the other and said, which one are you going to choose? Now, my... Cam, his name is Cam. He's telling me this story. I'm going, you going to what? He said, yeah. We looked at one another and said, which one are you going to choose? He said, okay, I'll take the first one. You take the second one. And that's how they chose their wives. And they stayed together for all their married life. Had nothing to do with this, but it's just one of those stories. I got to figure out how to... Fit in somewhere, and I thought I, I, I remember that story from a kid, and I'm going, "You gotta be kidding!" All right, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of Jordan towards Zor, and it was well watered there. In the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt was there. This was now before, obviously, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where he's going to end up. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east, and the two of them parted company. Five mistakes that I think 
Lot made. You may be able to pull some other ones. You may not always agree with me, but five that I think Lot made in the context of this story, and you'll see it as we go through finishing up in chapter 19. Both he and Abram had done incredibly well. Accumulated a lot of resources, had a lot of cattle, a lot of sustainable land, and some that wasn't able to do that. And so it came to that point after their where uh, servants not being able to get along said, okay, it's time for us to separate. Abraham said, okay, you choose first. In chapter there, in verse 10 there, it said, Lot saw, he looked down and said, okay, that looks awesome. And then in verse 11, that's why I hesitated for a moment. It says he chose for himself. Now to me, when I look at that phrase, it seems as if Lot placed financial prosperity over spiritual prosperity. Now, we're going into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, if you're familiar with any of the Old Testament stories, that's one of the most classic and most familiar is God eventually destroyed those cities because of the sin of those two cities. When I look at this and I see Lot, knowing that he only took at it from, looked at it from face value or what it said and really never took the time to dig even deeper and try to find out what was going on, it seemed to me or occurred to me that Lot chose first over the beauty or what it had to offer than the impact that it was going to have on his family. Now, the world would say you, you did a good job. You chose wisely. You made a good choice. I would say, have you prayed about this decision? Now, again, I get it. We're on this side of the story, and so we understand Sodom and Gomorrah, but I can't believe that much naivety or naivety to not know what was out there or what the story or situation was all about. Where's your family going to worship? These are followers of the living God. They had seen God. They had heard God, not visibly seen him, but they certainly had saw, was able to see what he was able to accomplish. And he heard the stories. I got to believe if he's connected that well and moving together with Abram, he's heard a lot of what God has done and what God has said and how God has blessed and how God has moved. What impact is this decision now going to have on your family? There are a lot of people in life who move in their career because of a job placement or a job promotion. And many of them will make decisions on a number of factors. But what I find so often, many times a lot of people will make decisions on how it's going to benefit benefit me financially or whether I'll be able to rise the corporate ladder. And not always, what is the impact of this decision going to have on the spiritual nature of my family? And even when they go to move, they'll, they'll find themselves making sure they've checked out where they're going to work. And many times the neighborhood that they ought to live in and what school their children ought to go to. Every time we interview a pastor, one of the first questions they ask us is, what are the schools like? And then they'll make a decision based on a great environment for their kids in school. Now, in our context, obviously, we're giving them the opportunity to be a part of what we believe is a great church. But so often I see people moving and relocating, making decisions based on finances or based on achievement or how they can move up the ladder. And then calling back a year or five or six months later saying, we cannot find a church. How many times they'll say to me, is there another church like CAC where I'm moving to or where I moved to? And the answer, of course, is no. Not because we're special, it's just every church is different. Now, we all have the same doctrinal statement, but we're different in a lot of contexts. And so, you know, I'll talk to them about where maybe other Reliance churches are. 
But there are a lot of differences from one or the other. And they will have already made the decision as opposed to making sure they understood that their children's spiritual health is more important than their physical location and even their academic world. To Lot, it was just a good business decision. But there was so much more beyond that. In the normal process of life, you and I have the opportunity every day of our life or every year or once every few months to make some pretty significant decisions, whatever those decisions may be. And our making those decisions, for those of us who are raising children, have an enormous impact on our children. And one of the questions I encourage you to wrestle through is, are your children understanding clearly what's important to us as a family? What our priorities are? What's really important to us? Why are we making these certain decisions? Praying about those decisions. Having them see you pray (coughs) about those decisions. Having them hear you say, hey, I just want you to know, mom and I... Mom and I have been praying about this, or Dad and I have been praying about this, or I prayed about this if you're a single parent. And I want you to know this is what I sense God speaking to me about. Now, when they get to a certain age, I encourage you absolutely to pull them into the process. When we made our decision about coming here, we were in a great church in a wonderful community, great environment, and we all four prayed very clearly and long and lengthy about making that decision because I knew it had an impact on you and this church and certainly the one I was about to leave. And when your kids get a certain age, you want them to know that not only are you praying about it, but we as a family are making this decision based on what we really understand are the priorities of life. Not just because it's going to give us an opportunity to have a bigger home or, whoa, finally, now we're going to get the pool. We're going to, wherever that may be or what you're using as criteria to make decisions. But we really believe that this decision that we're about to make is going to have a negative and maybe backing up and saying this decision that we're about to make, we believe will have a better impact on your life spiritually than where we are right now. And I hope they hear you praying about it. I hope they have conversations with you and you have conversations with them about that. When I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me how large the church was or how fast it grew or how many members you had or what your income was or how many missionaries even we sent out. God's going to say, I want to talk to you about your relationship as a leader in your home with your wife and your girls. I could be surprised. Maybe he does want a history chart. (laughs) Maybe he does want a numbers chart when I get there. But I got to believe that after a relationship of being able to say I'm allowing you in because you accepted Christ as, my, as your Savior, March of 1965, and that conversation goes on. But I got to believe one of the first questions he's going to talk to me about or one of the first things he's going to talk to me about is how I shepherded and led my wife and how I led my two girls. I got to believe that's pretty much the biggest priority. And I'm pretty sure he's going to ask you the same thing. How are you leading your home? What are the priorities? What are you saying to them is most important? I heard a great statement the other night. We know the price of so much and the value of so little. We know the price of so many things and the value of so few. That is a great line. Second, 
environment. Lot somehow expected that his family would live in Sodom and not become like the people of Sodom. That they wouldn't have, or that area or that environment wouldn't have a negative impact on his family. He underestimated what a wrong environment would do for his family. It's extremely important that you and I as parents are very aware of the environment that our children are in and many times who they associate with. There's an axiom, an association axiom in your sermon notes, a couple blanks for you to fill in. Where you go determines who you meet. In many cases, where you go determines who you meet. Who you meet many times can determine how you think. How you think determines what you do, and what you do can determine what you become. Where you go determines what you, who you meet. Who you meet many times determines how you think. How you think determines what you do, and what you do determines what you become. That's why I am absolutely convinced decisions about college is one of the most critical decisions that your children can make and you can make for them for those very reasons. Decisions on college are one of the most critical decisions as a family you're making and one of the most critical decisions your children are making for those very reasons. Because that, in those four years, from 18 to 22, or unless they squeeze it into five years and 23 and come out the other side married or engaged or career decision or who they're going to date, who they're going to be around, moral decisions they're going to make, a lot of them are made. Now, again, we all clearly aware of now many kids are being much more active in a lot of areas, positively and negatively, way before they ever reach college. Talk about that in a couple of months on a whole other stat when we get to our series in the fall. But who they meet, who they're around, who they're with, incredibly important. I can take you places tonight, allow you the opportunity to spend some time with some godly people, and it would bring out the best in you. Just spending some time with some godly people or people spending time with you, you watch them bring out the best. And I could also put you on a bus, go to New York City, 42nd Street, and you and I both will be dealing with some things and thoughts that we shouldn't deal with. If that does us or that to us as adults, imagine what it does to a teenage mind. Associations have a lot to do with how we think and how we respond and what we do in life. And the impact those decisions have on us. (laughs) Heard the story of an old guy who tried to enter a mule in the Kentucky Derby. I'm sure you've heard this one before. And he said, this is for thoroughbreds. You can't put a mule in the Kentucky Derby. He said, I know, but I thought the association would do him good. (laughs) Lot thought he could have his kids in that environment and not be affected by it. And it was a huge, huge mistake. Our children may not have the best environment in school. They may have a great environment in school. But that makes us, knowing that, knowing what that environment is like, making sure that we have a home that is solid. Because the air in their lungs and the wind in their sails is going to be taken out sometimes when they go into that world, whatever that may be. And we have to make sure that when they come home, we're able to fill their tanks. And we have an environment at home where they are getting their tanks filled and the wind put back in their sails. My oldest daughter, I said before, has two adopted sons. They have the same mom but different dads. And they're real 11 months apart. As I began to process that in my mind, I realized Aaron and Eric are going to have no impact or no control on genetics but an enormous amount of control on environment. And I am absolutely convinced that environment will trump genetics every time. That environment will trump genetics 
every time. I get it. I understand bloodlines and predispositions in some cases and specifically for diseases. But I'm still fascinated by the fact I'll see them do certain things and I'll say, you're just like your mom. That's amazing. And she, Aaron's not their mom. But I watch the behavior, I watch the attitudes, and I, and I love the phrase, you're just like your pap. You know, I'll just say that. Even if it's not, I'll say it, but just to get it into his head. But just all of those issues, we were, we were talking the other day, he said, pap, you're really getting dark. And I said, yeah, but uh, I'm trying to get as dark as you. He says, getting close, pap. Getting close. Said, That's the plan, bud. I'm absolutely convinced that environment will, will trump genetics. Now, I, I've got uh, the next 20 years to see it played out. But, man, you and I have such an opportunity as moms and dads and grandparents, specifically grandparents, because in many cases we're helping raise those children to create an environment that will make an enormous difference in our lives. Number three mistake, living a double life. Living a double life. He somehow thought he could change his society without ever taking a stand against it. I'm not going to read chapter 19. And I'm saying this this way. This chapter 19 is like something out of Jerry Springer crazy reality show. And I read it. I've read it a hundred times. I read it again this week as I was preparing for it. I said to the elders the other night, I'm not reading chapter 19. Trust me. It's nuts. But there's a powerful story in it. That I can't avoid. Now, by saying that, you're going to want to go home and read chapter 19, right? Yeah, it's like putting up a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. What do you want to do? Just be sure. I do that all the time. The story is about two angels who come in, and, and they basically say, Lot, you just need to know. There's so much wickedness, so much sin, so much depravity in these two cities. God's going to destroy them. I, I just need you to know that. And so these two angels come in and they tell a lot the story and people in the community find out they want to do something detrimental to the angels. And Lot says, no, I don't want you to do that. Take my daughters, but don't do that to my visitors or my guests. And I'm going, are you out of your mind? And I looked at that context and, and I realized what Lot was saying to them in verse 9 is, I don't want you to do anything wrong. He's trying to convince the people of the city not to do the wrong thing. And they're looking at him like deer in headlights, like, who are you to tell us what to do? And then all of a sudden I realized that Lot had been living here all this time as a follower of God, as a clear understander of what God was able to do, spending all of this time with Abram. Now he's living in this environment and had zero impact on them. And now, at this place, in the most critical moment of his life, he's trying to take a stand. And they blow him off. Lot somehow thought he could live a double double lifestyle and it wouldn't matter. Now, after all this time, he tries to take a stand and no one listens. Now, have a line in your sermon notes. The longer you take, you get a new job or start a new job or live in a new neighborhood or whatever that may be, the longer you take, And sharing your faith in God or talking about your faith in God or trying to take a stand as a Christian, the longer you take in doing that in this new work environment of this new neighborhood, the harder it's going to become. The longer you take in making a stand or taking a stand in that job or in that environment, the more difficult it's going to become. 
Because they're going to say, who are you? I've watched you. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And what you're now saying and what I've seen, it doesn't match. Sadly enough, men are, are great compartmentalizers. And maybe you ladies already know that, but we're great compartmentalizers. And we can pretty much be one way at work and another way at home and sometimes another way at church. And I realize a lot of people can do that. And somehow, some way, we've convinced ourselves that that's okay. That, that that's all right. That I, I can be this way at work. I can hang around with the boys and go out after work and do all this stuff. I can look at all this junk and, and I can do all of that. But come to church, this is amazing grace. And I'm praising God and I'm loving what he's done for me. And everybody thinks I do this on a regular basis. And, and then all of a sudden, someone from work happens to show up at church going, what? I didn't know you were a Christian. You realize how sad of a statement that would be for someone to say about us who wouldn't follow, if we've been following God for a long period of time? I didn't know you were a follower of God. Number four example. Got to keep moving. He thought his family would accept his words instead of his lifestyle. Lot thought they would accept what I say even though I haven't lived it in front of them. In verses 12 and 13 of that same chapter, uh, the, the two men, the one who were coming to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying we're going to destroy it. Do you have anyone else here? Sons, daughters-in-law, sons or daughters. Anyone else in the city who belongs to you? You've got to get them out of here because God's going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against the people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. Basically, Lot, whoever you've influenced for righteousness, get him out. So Lot does. He goes to his family, goes to his daughters and his sons-in-laws, and he said, uh, who are pleased to be married to his daughter, look, we've got to get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy this city. And verse 410, it says, 14 says his sons thought he was joking. Almost as if God who? Most serious moment in Lot's life and they think he's joking. Believe me, our family, and as closest to us, but our family has checked us out pretty well. And, and they watch our lives and they know if what I say matches up with what I do. Especially that strong-willed child. I don't know if any of you have one. Or if you know of someone who has one. That strong-willed child who's always button. And, and many times I've said to you before, the one you butt heads with the most is the one most like you. Whether you like to know that or admit that or not, the one you butt heads with the most is the one usually the most like you. Observations in your sermon notes, Lot hasn't influenced very many people to God. Those he wanted to influence, he couldn't. Respect from others comes from our consistent lifestyle. Over 80% of what we learn, we learn visually. Over 80% of what we learn, we learn visually. It's how we, how we learn. If, if what I do, in my case, if what I do doesn't match what I say I am, a follower of Christ, I've lost my influence. If what I do doesn't match what I say I am, a follower of Christ, I've lost my influence. If there's inconsistency in our behavior and family life, the results are confusion to our kids. If what I am is what I do, it creates in your notes credibility. All of that is incarnational leadership. I'm leading by example. I don't have to say it. I'm leading and they follow. That's what they want to follow. Lot thought one message could all of a sudden bring change. I'm telling you, as I said a moment ago, your strong-willed child will find a crack in your lifestyle and they'll push you on it to the end. Our life and how we live it has to match what we say we are. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, not a Christian because I live in a Christian nation, 
or I'm not Judas, uh, a Jew, or I'm not an Islam, I'm not a Buddhist, so I must be a Christian. It narrows down to those. This has nothing to do with a tag or a label. If I raise my hand, or if I say I'm a follower of Christ, if I say I'm a Christian, the, the genuineness of that term means I'm an imitator of Christ. I'm a follower of him. And if I claim that, then my lifestyle has to bear it out. One of the Ten Commandments, I'd love to do a series on the Ten Commandments one of these days. I haven't done one for probably 15, 20 years. But don't take the Lord's name in vain. And we've always said that's swearing. And it could be. I, I, it could be. I really, I honestly believe, don't say you're a follower of Christ if you're not going to live it out. You've taken my name in vain. The final thing is entanglements. I, I got uh, around my house. I was sitting there last Monday. My, first, my favorite thing to do on, on, on Monday mornings when I'm off, everything is, is shut down in my life. And I'll get up early in the morning because I can't sleep anyhow at my age. And I'll get up in the morning. I'll go out with uh, iPad, which I read a lot of news and devotions and all this stuff. And I looked over Monday, and I saw on the, the uh, slats there on my porch all these vines. And at one point, I thought, those things are really pretty. Got a little flower on it. You know, it's just kind of cool. And then all of a sudden, I began to look around the house, and I realized that those things had so entangled themselves in every part of the landscaping around my house that it was choking the life out of it. I thought, okay, there's a great visual example of what I'm talking about here this morning. Lot didn't realize how much of the world had gotten a hold of him and his family. Judgment's coming in this chapter. When the coming of dawn in verse 15, the angel says, okay, this is it. Take your wife and your daughters and get out of here. But he hesitated. The men had to grab him by the hand and his wife and his daughters and lead them out of safety. He couldn't even pull his family out of spiritual crisis. The angels had to take him by the hand. Some things may seem okay at the time and it may seem like it's not that big a deal and it's not that bad. But after a while, they'll so entangle themselves around us and so wrap themselves around us that they'll choke the spiritual life out of us. And I looked at all those vines around my house. Now, that little picture that I had there is just near the end as I was pulling them out. And I thought, wait a minute, I want to take a shot of that because it's a great visual. I mean, they were literally everywhere. They had wrapped themselves around one of the porch chairs and literally had, I don't know how, had pulled it away from where I originally sat it. It was just everywhere. And it seemed so innocent at first, didn't seem like that big of a deal. Here Lot's in this moment of knowing his whole world is about to collapse. And he hesitated. Because he just somehow underestimated the power of entanglement. Being in a situation or allowing things to happen or being in an environment where I've allowed it to remain and never took a stand, never got rid of it, never pulled that weed out of my life. And it sucked the life out. Five, six chapters from, from 13 to 19. Lot lost his friend, his influence, his home, his business, his possessions, his ability to do the right thing, and most of all, the respect of his family. Wow. That's a lesson. That, that's a lesson that needs to be shared. That's a lesson to avoid the pitfalls. And the danger zones that God clearly 
has put in front of us so that I can lead my family on the right path. I grew up, or my kids grew up, we watched the old TV show MASH a lot. It was just one of our fun shows. And I always loved casting on a great show that lasts a long period of time that when one character leaves, when Henry left, they brought in Potter. And when uh, one guy leaves, they bring in BJ. And they just do a great job in casting, and it lasts so long. And I, as soon as I was looking at this story this morning, I thought of one scene that clearly went in my mind. Uh, the little boy who ran out to a minefield, a little Korean boy who ran out to a minefield, and Radar, the company clerk, you know, just the innocent, young, Midwest kind of country boy who was a kid himself, ran out after him. And everybody realized he's in the middle of a minefield. I think the BJ comes over and says, okay, follow the path. Follow the steps that got you in there and will get you out to safety. I thought, man, that's a pretty accurate visual of what it's like raising, a kid, raising children today or grandchildren today. Life is a minefield. There are minds everywhere that we want to help them avoid. And we want to make sure they're staying on the right path and, and taking the right steps. And the only way they're going to know that is watching us as their parent or their influence or their mom or their dad or their grandparent. They're, they're, we want to we wanna provide a safe passage for them to get out through this and come out the other side. And a lot of it has to do with us helping them stay on the path, avoid the mines, get to the other side, coming home, and God saying, great job. I really need affirmation. I, 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 I'll be really honest with you. I'm so disappointed in myself sometimes because I need so much affirmation in life. With people saying, hey, it was good or enjoyed it or thank you, whatever that may be. And I, I, I wrestle with that a lot, my self-esteem, and for a number of other reasons. But one thing I'm constantly trying to remind myself, the greatest day in my life is going to be when I get to home to glory. And God says, well done. Good job. I got to believe we all do. Father, I thank you for the opportunities you give us as moms and dads, as parents, as grandparents, as uncles and aunts, influencers in people's lives, as people at work who, who are desperately trying to figure out how to navigate the minefields of life, and they find out that we're believers, and, and, and they watch our lives, and they come to us and say, man, my life is so messed up. How can I get on the right path? And we'll have the opportunity to influence God. I looked at this story and I thought, oh, this is so crazy to share. And I realized there's so much power in what this story has for us. So may those who come behind us find us faithful. May those who watch our lives in our work, in our home, in our environment, in our neighborhood, in our schools, see who we are and it matches with what we say. And we have the opportunity for influence in a really positive way. So thanks for sharing it. Thanks for preserving it. Thanks for teaching us how to stay on the right path and how to avoid the pitfalls in the middle of life's everyday decisions. For all of us in this auditorium this morning who are at that place, hear us in these last 30 seconds. 
tell you where we need the most help. Thank you for listening. In the name of Jesus, I pray.